Let's pray. Father, with all that is on the horizon, I ask that you would give us joy even in the midst of persecution or being in want or being in need and not being very happy. We know that you have a deep abiding joy that you can provide for us, for we know how the story ends. And we know, Lord, that you want us prepared. You told us in your word how all of this ends. You want us to have the information. You have guided us. And so as we go through the word here, Lord, and we look at the final words of Paul to the Ephesian elders, may we learn from that. May we learn what a a church leader, somebody who serves, what they're supposed to be like, the characteristics that's supposed to be something that they exude. Help us to look at these six or seven things and take them to heart for ourselves as well, wherever they are applicable. In Jesus' name, amen. So with this complete information, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So we have everything we need, guidance for our lives, psychologically, spiritually, even physically. He tells us what to do, as you saw on the food for thought. If a man will not work, he'll not eat. So he's going to go hungry a little bit. And this is people in the church he was referring to. Now, Scripture has the only complete and trustworthy information. And Paul, he makes this address, which we will cover again. I'm going to go back to verse 17, even though we got a little bit beyond that last week. Back to verse 17 in chapter 20. And Paul addresses the Ephesian elders. He sent for them, the overseers, the pastors. He said, come on in, I want to talk to you. Because he knew that he would be heading to Jerusalem and they would probably never see him again. And so he wanted to leave them with some information, some examples, and this is how they're to conduct themselves inside the church. And again, it's specifically the elders, overseers, or the uh, pastors, maybe even deacons inside the church. And so in verse, actually 19, he says there, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. So the first one I gave you last week, and I didn't complete the list, was he was an example of humility. And it said that in verse 19. Now, trivia question. In the Old Testament, who was called the most humble man on the face of the earth? Do you guys know? It's Moses. Moses was called the most humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now, this man was schooled in all the teachings of Egypt. He knew uh, his uh, heritage, that he came from the Jews. He had God meet him personally, face to face, and sit down. Now, you could have walked out and said, yeah, but I know who God is. You don't know, but I know. It wasn't like that at all. He, He was... Completely humble, but you have to ask yourself, well, what does humble really mean? Well, you can describe it as being lowly or meek. A a humble person has an apprehension of their own knowledge. Like, I I don't know everything. 
maybe some things I know, but I don't know everything. Or they would have an idea of the imperfection of their capabilities and awareness of their own fallibility. You know, that they, they fail in so many different areas and uh, the corruptibility of the flesh can just overcome. This is a humble person that says, you know, I, I'm so easily corrupted and my capabilities, I, I can't do everything which is out there. A humble person is also cognizant of their own sinfulness. They know how sinful they are. They know that their capabilities lack, that they are fallible, and that their knowledge lacks. And this is who Moses would have been. You know, once you get into the presence of God face to face, you understand what you are not. You understand what you don't know. You understand your weakness because he is so great. And God would appear to him, which caused him to go in the proper direction to be humble. You know, a prideful individual, they think they know everything, they overestimate their capabilities, and they ignore their fallibility and sinfulness. If you ask somebody, you know, do you think you're a sinful person? No, no, I'm a good person. Usually is what this, that's pride on the inside. If you ask somebody who's been following the Lord the way that they should, they will say, oh, I am so sinful. Even the very thoughts of my heart would condemn me even let alone any actions that I have committed. And each one of us could be able to say, I have done shameful things, things that I never want repeated by anyone. And that's walking in humility. And especially when we do that before God, maybe not necessarily before everyone else, but certainly before God, that humble person he gives promises to. Now, what are one of the promises? In Psalm 18, verse 27 It tells us that God saves the humble. You save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. You know, Proverbs chapter 6 says there are six things that the Lord does hate. Yes, there are seven that are detestable. Haughty eyes is number one on the list. And God opposes that individual. There was also a promise given to the Jews for healing and prosperity. And I'm sure you're familiar with 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land, which means their land will produce, which means they will be prosperous. So he will forgive their sin if they were humble. The same thing can apply to us. If we are humble, God will forgive us our sins and he will cause us to prosper. Now, not become wealthy, But he will provide for us whatever we need. You know, the sparrows of the field, does he not take care of them? And even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed as the flowers of the field. And yet God takes care of everyone, both the good and the wicked. But God can give a special blessing if you follow him, if you are humble. And if you take on these characteristics. Also, there's a promise to receive grace or unmerited favor in proverbs chapter 3 verse 34 says he mocks the proud mockers but gives grace to the humble and he also gives a promise to the humble to provide for them direction and knowledge psalm 25 verse 9 he guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way there were lots of people many thousands millions that aren't mentioned in scripture that are truly humble But it's one thing to be humble. It's another to be humble and courageous. 
where you walk in humility, you understand your failings, and you put yourself out there to do what is right regardless of the consequences. For instance, we have people like King David. King David was a humble man before God, and he was a warrior. You know, I, I've gone through and I've read about some of these guys, these warriors, how strong they were. We don't even come close today. One of these guys, and I, there was a couple of them, they killed like 300 men all by themselves. One guy on a battlefield killed 300. How long would it take you to kill 300 people? Hours, maybe? And you're swinging that sword? And some places in Scripture says that the sword was so stuck to the hand that he couldn't take out the sword, that it was just gripping so tightly to it. These guys... They were men, okay, men. They weren't confused about their gender. They knew exactly who they were. They went out there and they did the job. They're part of the military and they were going to take no guff from anybody and they stood with David who stood with the Lord. And now David, he had his failings, we know that. But he was mighty. He, He killed a lion and a bear with a rock and a piece of leather. He killed a man who was nine foot tall that had a spear like a weaver's rod. Now, a weaver's rod, I think it's nine or ten feet tall and it's made of steel. It's something huge. And David said, I got this. And he went out there with his sling and took him down. And he was able to throw that stone so rapidly, so fast, that it embedded in his skull. Knocked him out. And then, of course, he took... Uh, Goliath's own sword and cut his head off with it. An amazing thing. He was courageous, but he was a humble man. Now, was he always humble? No, he, he had mistakes like the rest of us. And then Moses, we already know, was the most humble man on the face of the earth. And there's a woman, a virtuous woman. She was married to a man who was a fool. What was his name? Bible trivia. Nabal. Nabal was a fool. If you have a child, a son, do not name the child Nabal. Nabal was married to Abigail. Abigail found out that David and his men, before he was installed as king, he protected Nabal and all of his herd never took anything from him whatsoever. David sent men to say to Nabal, hey, you know, can we have some raisin cakes and a little, maybe a couple of sheep, you know, something to eat to take care of us because we've protected you. And Nabal says, who is David? Who are you guys? No way, no how. Abigail found out about it and she goes, Oh, man, we are dead. And David, sure enough, he was going to go in and he was going to kill Nabal and all of his family. So what did Abigail do? A wise and humble woman. She went in and baked the cakes and she got some food and she took them to David and bowed down before David and said, David, forgive me, my foolish husband, my stupid husband. This is for you. And, of course, we know that Nabal found out that David was coming to kill him, and he died a few days later. And then David said, I'll take that woman to be my wife. She's a wise woman, a wise, humble, and courageous woman is what she did. And then what about um, Mary? Mary was a teenager. Uh, Usually you could get married back in that day, 13, 14, 15 years old. And she found out she was pregnant. 
Joseph, I want to let you know something. What? I'm pregnant. Joseph could have divorced her at that point. He was going to until the Lord told him not to. And, and she stuck through it. She gave birth to Messiah. She was humble before the Lord. And she had the Magnificat that she talks about in Scripture that she blessed the Lord in who he was. And she is a courageous woman carrying the Messiah and caring for the Messiah. You don't fall down. Don't hurt yourself. You know, the little child, I, I better watch out. He's God, you know, so I have to take care of him. How are you going to take care of God? But that was what she was called to do. What a difficult job that must have weighed on her a little bit, doing everything just perfect because God is perfect. You know, and Jesus, you know, he probably had the runny noses and needed to be changed and all that stuff, just like a normal child. But she was very courageous. What about Daniel? So many stories you could tell about Daniel, but the one, the lion's den that I like, you know, they, they passed a decree and the king signed it to where you were not allowed to pray to anyone but the king for a certain amount of time. And Daniel's habit was to open up, face the east and or face toward Jerusalem and open up the shutters to his house and pray to God three times a day. And when the decree came down and he found out about it, what did he do? He went to his house, opened the shutters, and prayed three times a day. What happened to him? He got thrown into the lion's den. What a courageous man, a humble man, but courageous doing that. And he was just a teenager, you know, when he was taken off to Babylon. And what are you going to do? What about uh, Hannah? Remember Hannah? She gave birth to a son when she was barren, and she went to uh, the... Uh, uh, tabernacle to pray and you know she was just I think it was a tabernacle I have to go back and check but she went to pray and Eli the priest heard her and, and she, he thought she was drunk and she goes no I'm just calling the Lord I just want a baby can I please have a baby and of course that led to the birth of Samuel and she had other children after that and she is humble before the Lord and she was courageous she gave Samuel to the service of the Lord and he became a mighty prophet these people are all examples to us of what it is to be humble but be courageous. Samuel, courageous man in fear for his life. Elijah, Elisha, all of these, Isaiah, all of these guys stood up for the Lord and they were humble and they are our examples. And he served the Lord, Paul did, in verse 19, with great humility and with tears. Now imagine doing what is right, and for Paul, in his case, this is giving the gospel and being severely persecuted for it. Now remember, he was stoned, left for dead, he was imprisoned, he had to flee for his life, he was shipwrecked, he was bitten by snakes, the Jews opposed him, they had plots against him. Imagine this was you, and you were going from city to city, and you found yourself often alone often hungry, often on the run, and you're turning to God and you're saying, God, can I, can I just have a break for a little bit? Every city he went to, the Holy Spirit reminded him there's persecution that waits. And he go, great, let's go. And, and they would head off towards the city, and sure enough, there'd be persecution. And when he would be in jail, you know, he started singing praises. There had to be times where it became so heavy for him 
that he just cried out to the Lord. Like, you would question your own motivation. Am I doing what I'm supposed to do? Did God really call me to do this? You would examine your cause. Is it right or is it wrong? You would say, did I do right in telling these people what I told them? You would do the same thing. You would doubt your own actions. You start to question what exactly you're doing because you're beaten, you've been stoned, you've been whipped, all of these things. You would start to think, how unfair. This is completely unfair. I have done nothing deserving this persecution. Then a sense of justice would come over you. You would start to say things like, these these guys are going to get it. And you would start to think what you would do to them if you had the opportunity to do it. This is in the flesh. This is not walking in the spirit. And then at some point, you would cry out to the Lord for relief. You would say, God, can I just have a moment here where I'm not just always suffering and on the run? And you would start to open the floodgates of tears is what you would do. And this was Paul's life ever since he got saved. And so he served with great humility He acquiesced to the will of the Lord, but the whole time he was shedding tears, great amount of tears. So he's enduring hardship, which was the second point. And it says, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews, and we are modeled by hardship, we don't like hardship, we save up our money, we try to save up our money so we don't have any hardship when we get older, when we can no longer work, but we know that scripture teaches us there's a certain amount of benefit that comes from hardship and suffering. And we try everything we can to avoid hardship and suffering. Romans chapter 5 verse 3 talks about, but we also rejoice in our suffering, not for our sufferings, but in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and the character hope. The hope of being redeemed. And so that's the benefit of going through hardship and suffering. The more pleasure we try to find in our lives, the worse it is for us. But if we allow ourselves to be open to what the Lord would have us go through as far as the hardship, we will benefit even though it's not going to be pleasant. Thirdly, Paul showed no hesitation in proclaiming the gospel. Verse 20 says, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in verse 22, he's compelled by the Spirit. It says, And now I'm compelled by the Spirit. I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship is facing me. And I talked to you about this. Uh, last week about being compelled by the Spirit. What does that mean? Scripture uh, will bear witness in your own heart, but you also get some affirmation on the outside. And I think that people make a mistake in this area more often than they should. Uh, For instance, it's, it's a common thing, even in the Christian church, for marriage and divorce and remarriage and all of those things. And somebody who's a serial divorcee, now, I know that marriages, sometimes they just end. And it's because we live in a sinful world. We have sinfulness in our hearts. And that just takes place. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
But for those people who do this serially, I, I had one woman uh, years later, she attended the church in the early years and I saw her and she divorced her husband and she came to me in a jovial manner and said, I upgraded. And I thought to myself, it was in a public setting, you know, I, I wasn't going to say much to that, but if somebody says, I upgraded, I mean, what do you think about that? You think, I think you have a wrong view of what God had in mind. You know, you're, and I know marriages meet their demise. I get that. I understand that. But when the attitude is, I'm going to upgrade, that he just didn't measure up. You're the one that said, I do. You're the one that God would say, you made a mistake. You, know, you may have made a mistake in the first half, but the second half, stick with it. And again, I, I need to say this. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But people make the mistake all the time, like a, a second or third spouse or a fourth spouse, you know, Elizabeth Taylor, what did she marry five times or something like that? Do you think people like that ever say, God brought us together? I think they're deceived. I think God brought you together in the first place. Maybe you made a mistake, but God can redeem that where you are. And, and we, we get this idea, and I've had phone calls on that. Are you and your husband a believer? Uh, no. I, I think I told you a few weeks ago, somebody called up the church and wanted to get married. And I said, well, you know, there's a couple of conditions for getting married. We just don't marry anyone. And I said, one, you both have to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not living together. You're not sleeping together, you know, and, and do that. And the guy said, well, I guess I'm just a sinner and thank you very much. And he just hung up. Okay, you know, not that we can't correct those things, and I made that clear, but, you know, people think, but I love him, and God brought us together. No, or marrying an unbeliever. I've had people tell me that too. God brought us together. No, I I don't think so. God's not going to violate Scripture. Or, you know, you read all the time that God told me to do this. What? Kill my children there's a woman recently she said she, God told her to kill her children she's mistaken I'm going to say it just boldly she's mental that's not what scripture says and if we just followed the scriptures you know, it would go well for us or would God ever tell you to steal something you know, one of the sad things about Maui and the fires that are there there's all kinds of sad terrible horrible egregious things that are taking place over there but one of them is FEMA wasn't coming in with just water. And some of the people who were there had to break into stores just to get drinking water for them and their children. And they said, God, I hope we never have to be in that kind of condition. I'm not going to condemn that person, even though Scripture would condemn them. But I think God might have some mercy in that case, even though they're guilty, just like the rest of us. And so we want to make sure that if we think we're compelled by the Spirit, it matches up with Scripture. Scripture is never going to be violated when the Spirit is telling us what He wants us to do. So with this, verse 24, it goes on to say, However, I consider my life worth nothing if I only may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. 
And I made the point that the, the labor for the Lord is more important than our very lives, and also we're supposed to prioritize God's work over personal preferences. If God wants us to do something, and we know it, and the Spirit has led us into it, do not put it off. Do it in God's timing, what he has told you to do. Do not put it off and say, well, you know, I got other things to do. I have to get some hair extensions, and that's just for me, not for Patty. Or, you know, whatever we might decide we need to do, put it off if the Lord has told us to do something. Verse 25, now I know that none of, none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So, when it comes to being innocent of the blood of all men, what he is saying is, whenever he had the opportunity, he opened up his mouth and he gave the gospel. Whenever we have the opportunity, we're supposed to open up our mouths And give the gospel. Tell somebody about Jesus Christ. This is not just for the elders and the deacons and those people who are running the church in Ephesus. It is for us as well as an example. Now, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16 says, But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer for everyone who asks, to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that you... For those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And so we're, we're supposed to be ready at a moment's notice. I know uh, at least one pastor, he carries around his little dagger. You know, the Bible is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Well, he carries around a little dagger on the side, a snap Bible. He pulls it out. And he's ready at any moment. That's why I carry the New World Translation. I, you know, I, because I'm looking for Jehovah Witnesses and I open that up and for any, any scripture, if it's valid, if it's true to the regular interpretation, I'll, I'll use that. It's the sword or you can carry a dagger or you can commit it to memory, the verses that you would need to be a witness. Going on here, the fourth thing is to be a herdsman or a shepherd. Keep, verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember, excuse me. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning you each, or warning each of you, night and day with tears. He's pleading with them, like, will you just pay attention? These people are going to come in. They're going to try to deceive you. They're going to try to lead you away. And, of course, Titus 1.9 says he must hold firmly somebody who's going to be an elder or a deacon uh, to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. That's one of the jobs of anybody in Scripture who is in leadership. You have to be able to refute false doctrine. You have to know what you're talking about. You have to do the study. You have to do the hard work to find out exactly what Scripture has to say. And there's going to be people who are, and here's an ancient word, a gainsayer. That's an old word. I I don't think anybody in this generation uses that. Are you a gainsayer? I don't know. What is a gainsayer? I'm going to get gain on something? No. No, it's somebody who opposes individuals, who contradicts what is being taught out there. That's who a gainsayer is. 
in any church, in any environment of Christianity, you're going to have gainsayers. And you have to make sure you're willing to stand up to them and oppose them. Now, you can do so with gentleness and respect. Unless they're causing harm, then you could admonish and you can rebuke them and have nothing to do with them whatsoever. Verse 32. Now, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So, so far we see Paul was humble and he gives that example to the elders, he was enduring. He had no hesitation in sharing the gospel. He encouraged them to be herdsmen or shepherds. And then the next one is money. Verse 33 says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy and said that there are going to be men who are robbed of the truth who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. You don't go into the ministry because you think you can make a living at it. You go into the ministry because you're called. And if you can make a living at it, great. If you can't, keep preaching. God will provide. And Paul, you know, he's a tent maker. He was able to work the tent and then sometimes he was able to be taken care of. It's okay. It's not something that he has to take advantage of, even though scripture says uh, that a minister is worthy of his hire and monetary gain is okay. But becoming filthy rich over the ministry, I, I think there's a special judgment for those who do that, whether it's Kenneth Copeland uh, I don't think Morris Cirillo is with us anymore. Uh, Mr. Tilton, who is out there. Uh, Todd Bentley, who is out there. These people that are just making money hand over foot. I think there's going to be a judgment that comes as a result of that. Those who enrich themselves off the ministry. Verse 35 He's talking about hard work here. This is number six. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus himself. He said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So even the ministers, even the apostles, they would work hard in order to have something to share with those who are genuinely in need. And that's the operative word in the United States. There are lots of programs out there. I prefer that people didn't go to programs. I prefer that people come to the church. They get the gospel. They learn how to live their lives. You know, the individuals that are homeless, most of them, it's either mental illness or it's drugs. And because of that, they don't want to work. And there are testimonies online of these people who say, you know, why should I work? I get the money. I get to go take drugs in the morning. I get a free meal. And then I go to sleep and I wake up and I repeat the next day. And that's what they do. Places like San Francisco and the people that are pushing that are getting extremely wealthy, sucking money from the taxes and just perpetuating this because the love of money is the root of all evil and I believe this is evil. I have made it my practice to never give money to somebody who is on the street. I just won't do it. And I've told you before, Al Cajon has bought into this. Do not give to panhandlers. Because you just encourage the panhandling. You encourage the home wrecking, so to speak. You know, the, the, there's so many things that we have done wrong in society. 
And let me give you a small example. You guys know what EBT is. You take the card, it used to be food stamps. They, sometimes you, they, they can't use the EBT for cash to get the drugs. So what they'll do is they'll go in and buy a cart full of water. They take the water in the parking lot. They open up the plastic bottles, get rid of all the water, take the bottles to recycling, get money, and go buy the drugs. So, do we not see that this is a problem? And then on top of that, with the drugs, they'll provide for places that they can get syringes and a place where they can keep from overdosing. So they encourage them and they get them stuck and they get them hooked on the drugs and it just becomes a real problem. I mean, what are we doing? And this is as a society. And this is one of those times where you're courageous. You stand up and say, no, this is wrong. This is wrong to do that. You are enslaving the people, whether to drugs or to the government. You're enslaving them. And so by hard work, we're to help those who actually need help. And when you find them genuinely, that's great. If you find somebody who just doesn't want to work, I recommend you don't help them. If you see somebody who just says, you know, I could do something, but it's better that I don't, you know, because I ache a little bit. Let me ask you, as you get older, do you find yourself aching more? (laughs) I was at my desk this morning and I got up and when I got up, I noticed I was... You know, just kind of straightening up a little bit. And why? But I still need to work, right? I can't. I just get warmed up a little bit. No, okay, it's, it's working better. But some people, they just say, nah, I'm not going to. You can do something. Something can be done out there. Encourage people if they're not working and they're relying on somebody else and they can't work, go get a job. Go work those hours. Go provide for yourself. Verse 36. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed, and they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. So Paul had a close connection with the people in Ephesus. Uh, His companion Timothy was the pastor of that particular church. Paul invested his life in the people, especially the elders there, and they were all greatly saddened that they would never see him again. He revealed his humanity. He was an example of humility. He endured hardship. He showed no hesitation in giving the gospel. He encouraged others to be a shepherd over the flock, not to hoard or accumulate or desire, get an appetite for money of others, and hard work. All of those things. And these are good not just for leaders in the church, but if you're a leader of a family, these things are good as well or if you're just a citizen of the kingdom these are attributes characteristics that we should develop in our lives my prayer for you is that you guys can do this that you see this and go you know it'd be good for me to do this the flesh says no take your rest this is going to be tough if you do that but the spirit says come do his work follow the promptings of the holy spirit reach out to others and be a friend to them let's pray father we we thank you that paul has been a friend to so many as we've seen in this chapter and in the next chapter how people embraced him and he was considered a great loss by those during his time. And Father, we we pray that we could be like Paul in so many ways but we know that our flesh is weak. May our spirits be willing and may you remind us often what a disciple looks like In Jesus' name, amen.